Before we preach, I just want to point your attention to uh, the fact that Jamie Yamoa is here. She went upstairs to drop off Zoe, uh, but her mom is here as well. Before you leave today, please encourage and show great love to this dear sister. We have been praying, as many of you know, for their son Zion, who has struggled with cancer. And so let us make sure that on this day where they're in town visiting, we encourage this family before they go. Let's pray together as we come to hear God's word. Son and Holy Spirit, we glorify you. We pray that you would encourage us and our dear sister today and pray that you would help us to do a good job of being the church of Jesus Christ. We pray and glorify you for who you are. We ask now that through the preaching of your word, your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see Christ and move us to love and worship him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The other week, Shino and I were flipping through channels and we stumbled upon this show called Fit to Fat to Fit. It's a reality show, as there are many of them now. And this show is about some folks who are desperately trying to get in shape and, and to lose weight. And they've got these personal trainers who have come alongside them to help them get fit. But here's the twist of the show. The twist or the unique angle of the show is that the trainer doesn't just come and sort of bark instructions at them. It's not a trainer who just stands at a distance and says, you know, push harder, try harder, run faster, and sort of just barks at them. Anyone who's ever struggled with weight or struggled to lose weight know how hard this whole thing can be. And sort of the complaint of all the people on the show is it's one thing for this trainer who's got this perfectly sculpted, perfect body, who's never tasted sugar in their life, for them to, you know, sort of come alongside and bark orders, but, but they have no idea what this is actually like, what it's really like to try and get in shape. And so, you know, it's, it's hard for the person because they, they want to say, essentially, I, I want to be like you, but you have no idea what it's like to be me right? It'd be like a millionaire that comes along and, and tries to sympathize with your struggle to pay the bills. In that, you appreciate their sympathy, and there's a sense in which you say, look, I want to be like you. I wish I was like you, but you have no idea what it's like to be me. Now, here's the interesting sort of twist on the show. In the show, the trainers come alongside their clients, and they actually spend the first four months of this extreme weight loss program by gaining weight, and not just a little weight, not just a, a little bit of weight, a significant, they gain 40 to 60 to 80 pounds of weight. In fact, for the first four months, all you do is watch these trainers go from these perfectly chiseled bodies to them packing down pizzas and fries and Cokes and cookies, and now their sculpted bodies begin to change. You actually see the transformation as they get flabby, as you get love handles and double chins. They, you, you see their sort of emotional struggle and all that they're going through. In fact, some just drop out in the process of it. Four months later, they meet up with their clients, and now their clients are blown away. And part of what they're blown away is they can't imagine that these people would be willing to go through all that just to be able to relate to them better. And now, having gone from fit to fat, they then go together four months in working out together to lose weight and be fit together. That's the name of the show, from fit to fat to fit. Now, this isn't very profound, and all analogies are imperfect, but 
as I thought about that, I couldn't help but think that's sort of the difference between religion and Christianity. That religion, the, the worldviews that are out there and all the man-made attempts to get to God are essentially you hold out this perfect ideal and you say, you should become like that. And the message of religion is, is here's what you should look like. So push harder, run faster, try more, get better. Become like that. The good news of Christianity, however, is that the most spiritually fit person the perfect person came down and didn't stand there and bark orders to us, but rather came down and became loaded down with our sin, weighed down by our evil until it affected him so that he could stand next to us and sympathize with us and identify with us so that he might lead us then to become what we could have never become on our own. You see, essentially, you look at religion and you go, I wish I could be like that, but you have no idea what it's like to be me. But with Christianity, the good news is that the one we want to be like became like us so that we might become like him. Hear that again. The good news of Christianity is that the one we want to be like became like us so that we might become like him. It's good news. And it's good news that you'll see all over the passage that we're looking at today. The passage we're looking at is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. So you've got a black Bible in the seat in front of you. Grab one. We're on page 836. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. This is the passage that David just read for us. When you turn there, what you're going to see is that there are essentially two scenes that we're going to see in the story. The story is Jesus gets baptized and Jesus gets tempted. He goes into the waters to be baptized and he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. That's the scene. And you're going to see good news in those two scenes. Let me just rewind for one second to remind you of where we were. We sort of started Mark chapter 1, the first eight verses last week, and we started with the beginning of the gospel. And we met John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, if you remember, had basically come to announce the arrival and prepare the way of Jesus. He's sort of like the introducer at the beginning of a show that's essentially just saying, and here's Jesus. Right? That's his entire role, his entire ministry, is to stand out there in the desert and go, here's Jesus. And when Jesus arrives, Mark, John fades into the distance as he ought, and Jesus arrives in verse 9. Here's how it starts. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now when Jesus shows up in verse 9, in one sense he shows up like everyone thus far in the story had shown up. Back in verse 5, if you scan up for a second, you'll notice that all the people were told from Judea and Jerusalem were coming, confessing their sins to be baptized by John. And with the crowds that were coming from all over, in verse 9 you're introduced to one more person who comes. Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, when you take that in for a second, it's a bit puzzling. A bit puzzling as to say, 
Why did Jesus get baptized? Right? John, you'll remember, was preaching a baptism for the repentance of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, for the cleansing, a picture of the cleansing of sins. Now, aside from what you'll know if you read the rest of the New Testament, namely that Jesus has no sin. So, so why, why is that? He's coming to take a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He has no sins to be forgiven of. He's coming to take a baptism for the cleansing and washing away of sins. He has no sins to be washed or cleansed away. So why is Jesus taking John's baptism? It becomes even more puzzling when you put this right next to the verse that comes right before. If you'll notice in verse 7 and 8, John himself didn't hold back but announced, hey, I'm essentially saying, here's Messiah. And when he comes, this one who comes after me will be greater than me he goes on to say, so much so that I can't even untie his shoelaces, so much so that whereas I might sprinkle or dunk you in some water, he will pour out the Holy Spirit on you. If you were here last week, Kevin gave a great simple illustration of, you know the difference between your kid's Fisher-Price lawnmower versus the real lawnmower. And why would you ever trade a real lawnmower for the Fisher-Price lawnmower? Well, why would the one who is greater than John who has promised to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit, now get dunked in John's water. Why is he doing that? And I want to say that amidst all the answers that could be, and I think there are some good ones, I think the most important thing is this. What you're seeing is that the one we want to be like is becoming like us. Essentially, what I want to say is this is the first step of Jesus, if you will, going from fit to fat. This is the first step of him identifying with us. The one we want to be like is becoming like us. I mean, would you, would you just picture the scene for a moment? You have hundreds, if not thousands of people who have come to be baptized by John for the forgiveness of sin, the repentance of sin, standing there at the Jordan River. In our smaller community, our GCM group, we were sort of batting around. You wonder what that scene looked like. You wonder, when, they, when it says confessing their sins, was it just the act of them coming that was a sign of their confession? Were they confessing privately? Were they confessing out loud? Either way, you can almost just picture the hum of these thousands of people, perhaps, gathered by the banks of the Jordan River. And there, I want you to take this in. Standing in line there, it, it, it'd be like standing in line at a soup kitchen or standing in line at the welfare office, or standing in line to collect unemployment. You may not know the specifics of the person standing next to you, but being in that line implicates something about you. Does that make sense? If you saw me standing in a soup kitchen line, you would begin to wonder, wait, what, what is going on there? If you saw me standing in the welfare office, the very presence of being there implicates something about you. Right? Standing in that line means you may not know the specifics of the guy next to you, but everybody on that line is in the same boat, in the, the same sort of condition. When you stood in the baptism line, you're, you were implicated by being there that you were a sinner. That's who stood on the baptism line. That you may not know the specific sins of the person sitting next to you, but you were all in the same boat. You were essentially sinners needing forgiveness. 
You were sinners needing to be cleansed. You were sinners needing to be washed of your sins. And there, standing in the baptism line, is Jesus. Would you take that in? Standing in the baptism line is Jesus. Standing there with all those people who need forgiveness of sins. With all the liars and all the thieves. With all the perverts and the adulterers. With the greedy and the racists. With the people with the bad marriages. With the people who have screwed up their relationship with God. God is standing in the baptism line with all of them. Would you picture that scene at the Jordan? that God was standing with the whole lot of sinful people who needed to be baptized, who needed pardon. You see, he stands there because I think Jesus gets baptized as a picture of the one we want to be like, becoming like us. That's why he got baptized. Baptism was a picture of, get this, both the judgment and the mercy of God. What do I mean by that? Baptism is a picture of both the judgment and mercy of God. Later in 1 Peter, Peter will compare baptism with the flood back in Genesis. If you know the story of the flood, do you remember God, because he saw the sins of the world, poured out this flood that drowned all of humanity. That was his judgment. Baptism was a picture that we go under the water as a sign that all of God's judgment and wrath for our sins should cover over us. But the mercy of God is that you don't end up dying in those waters, but that you're pulled up out of those waters. That though you should be drowned under God's wrath and in His judgment for your sin, you're pulled out as the mercy of God is extended to you. And Jesus does what? Jesus symbolizes that He will be the one who will go under the waters of God's judgment and God's wrath. I mean, would you even picture that? The pure, sinless one comes to the polluted waters of the Jordan River. Right? If, if baptism was a symbol that all these people's sins had been cleansed, could you imagine the spiritual filth in that water? And now would you see the pure one go and be buried into that filthy water? It'd be like a hundred muddy people going into waters and being cleansed. And one clean man going into those muddy waters and becoming dirty. That, that Jesus would be the one who would be polluted by our sin. The sins that were washed off us would be the sins he would go under. The judgment we receive would be the judgment that he swims under. This is what Jesus is picturing in his baptism. In fact, baptism was the first step of what Jesus would, had come to do. What do I mean? Later in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has a conversation with two of his disciples, and they're fighting about who gets to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus' throne in glory, and they say, we, we want a place of honor. And do you know what Jesus asked them? Jesus asked them way in Mark 10, long way from Mark 1, he says, listen, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Now put that together for a second. This is Mark 10. We want to say, wait, Jesus, you've already been baptized way in chapter 1. And yet his question to them is, are you ready to be baptized? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I will receive? What is this coming baptism for Jesus? 
And that's when you begin to see what baptism is, is a picture of what Jesus will ultimately do on the cross. You see, what he's talking about is, there is a going under God's wrath waiting for me. There is a going under God's judgment that is waiting for me. You see, what baptism sort of began to picture, the cross will fulfill. If, if baptism is the beginning of Jesus identifying with sinners, that will be fulfilled completely at the cross when he takes on the sin of sinners. If baptism is the beginning of the picture of Jesus going under God's judgment, the cross will be the place where he drinks in all of God's judgment. If baptism is a picture of him going underneath and being polluted by our sin, then the cross will be the place where he will drown, suffocate in our sin. You see that? When you're baptized, you're put under and you're pulled out. But the good news of Christianity is the one we want to be like became like us. So that on the cross, he will drown in our sin. Suffocate in our sin. There will be no lifting up in that moment in the cross. He will die there in our sin. This is the way the New Testament puts it. 1 Corinthians 5. That he who knew no sin, the fit one, became sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? That's fit one becoming unfit to take unfit ones and make them fit. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of Christianity. And it began here at the baptism that Jesus was picturing how he would stand with us, stand with us in our sin, nay, even become sin for us as he identifies with us and sympathizes with us. Do you hear, friends? Christianity is not a message that you should try harder to become more moral. Christianity is not a message that says, Try harder, push faster, go stronger, be better. Christianity is the one we want to be like, coming down and being weighed down and loaded down with our sins. Taking it upon himself and into himself, Jesus stands in that crowd, in that mob of sinners, and takes John's baptism. And I want you to know, if we had a drone that we could send up and take a picture over that crowd, you would not have been able to pick Jesus from anyone else. Don't believe the paintings. There was no halo over his head. If you saw that crowd, you would have just seen a crowd of sinners. And lost somewhere in that crowd is God himself. Standing with sinners. This is the good news of Christianity. A God who comes indistinguishable from every other sinner and stands next to us in the crowd. And perhaps it's because there was no halo to distinguish him that you see what happens next. Because in the next verse, it's almost like God pulls out all the special effects to say, hold on, though he's baptized like you, he is not like you. This one is different. Because all of Judea and Jerusalem, they go into the waters, they come out of the waters. But watch what happens when Jesus comes up out of the water. Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Did you take in the scene? All these people, they go into the water, they come out of the water. When Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens tear open. The Spirit descends upon Him like a dove. And a voice of the Father Himself booms from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Listen, this baptism is essentially the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. It's sort of the turning point from carpenter to preacher and Messiah and Savior. For example, do you know that in the book of Acts, after Jesus has died, after he's resurrected, if you remember, there's this scene where they need to replace Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. He betrayed Jesus. He goes and kills himself. They go, we got to find a replacement for Jesus, for Judas. And when they go, we got to find a replacement. The criteria is this. We need someone who's been with us the whole time. And they go from Jesus' baptism all the way to the resurrection. Do you get that? We need someone who's been with us the whole time. Starting with what? Starting with Jesus' baptism all the way to the resurrection. This was the moment that initiated his ministry. Inaugurated his ministry. And what happens when this one steps into the ministry that God has for him? The heavens tear open. The spirit descends. A voice booms out. You are my beloved son. Now, each of these are things that commentators have spent good amounts of time. For example, the heavens tear open. If you've read through the Old Testament, uh, an Old Testament scholar would have immediately heard, wait, I've heard that before. Back in Isaiah chapter 64, there's this prayer that Isaiah has to the Lord where he's begging God to come back to his people and rescue his people. And the prayer there is, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Right? What's the prayer? Oh, that you would rend the heavens. That's tear the heavens. And what do you see here? The, the heavens are being rent or rended or whatever the word for that would be. Rent, rended. It's being torn. The heavens are being torn. Oh, that the heavens would be rended and you would come down. Right? And, and what do you see? The heavens are torn. Or then the Spirit. If you write in the Old Testament, you would know when God calls a man and gives him a special task to do. For example, in 1 Samuel 16, when God sets David apart to be his king, what happens? The Spirit rushes into him. This was the sign that this person was set apart for my special task. And what do you see? The heavens are torn. The Spirit descends. And then God himself declares so that there's no question about who Jesus' identity might be. The Father himself declares, you are, this is, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, what almost the other characters in the drama, the other actors in the story don't fully get, we as the reader get right in chapter 1. What, what I mean is, the next time this word tearing will be opened and this voice will happen is way at the end in Mark 15. In Mark 15, you're going to see that the veil in the temple is torn when Jesus dies. And then, out of the mouth of a pagan, idolatrous Roman centurion is the sentence, surely this was the Son of God. Do you get that? We get to hear in chapter 1 from the voice of the Father himself, 
what it will take all the way till chapter 15 for the people to get. But for us, we're clued into this Jesus who got baptized right now is not like everyone else in the crowd around him. This is the one that the heavens have torn open for. This is the one on whom the Spirit has now descended and fills him and empowers him. And this is the one that the Father has spoken his love and his pleasure for. Now, for a second, if you were to step back for a moment from this scene of this baptism, it's an incredible scene. I mean, it's an amazing scene of the Trinity itself. You should know Christians worship a triune God, meaning Christians worship a God who is one and who is three, who is three and who is one. It is not three gods, but it is one God in three persons. The mystery of that is what Christians embrace. We worship the God, God the Father who is God, and God the Son who is God, and God the Spirit who is God, and the Father though is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Three persons, one God, and this God shows up in this scene. Do you see it? There at the banks of the Jordan, the heavens tear open and the voice of the Father speaks speaks over with pleasure and love over his son. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then the son is being baptized and comes out of the water to hear the voice of the father. And then the spirit descends upon him, fills him, empowers him in that moment. Would you imagine? This is the beautiful scene of the Trinity. The spirit who will come upon Jesus. And you know that the spirit is From conception all the way to resurrection, everything Jesus does, He does by the Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's filled here with the Holy Spirit. In a moment you'll see He's led and driven by the Spirit. All the ministry He does is by the Spirit. Hebrews tells us He offers Himself on the cross by the Spirit. And then He's even raised by the power of the Spirit. From conception to resurrection, Jesus is empowered by, filled with, driven by the Holy Spirit. And that's the scene that you see here. But here's why this matters. It matters because if you're listening carefully, there's good news in this scene. And the good news is that the one we want to be like has become like us so that we might become like him. Meaning the good news is, do you know that now we who have trusted in Jesus Christ, namely in his cross, his baptism as it were, we now get to relate to God like Jesus gets to relate to God. We now get to relate to God as sons. Put this together in your mind. Because Jesus was willing to go through baptism, and what I mean there is the baptism of the cross, because He was willing to go through that, and picture the scene at the cross, because He on the cross was the perfect Son who would be disowned by the Father, Would you take in that contrast? At this first baptism, the Father speaks over him, You are my beloved Son. With you I am so pleased. But when the baptism is fulfilled on the cross, what happens? That perfect Son looks into the heavens and finds it empty to him. Distant to him. Silent to him. The same Father who at the first baptism says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am so pleased is the one who for us will on the cross be abandoned as a son. 
and will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son will be abandoned so that we might become treated like sons. Would you get this? Because the son of God was willing to be treated like a sinner, sinners get to be treated like the sons of God. Because the Son of God was willing to be treated like a sinner, you and I get to be treated like the Son of God. This is how the Father looks over you now. It's good news. I don't know what your relationship like your dad was like. In a room like this, I imagine some of you had a wonderful relationship. And I imagine for some of you, I don't even know what it would do in your soul if you could imagine your dad saying to you, you are my dear child. I am so glad in you. I honestly can't imagine for some of you what it would have been like if dad would have held you by the shoulders, looked you in the face and said, you are my dear child. You make me so glad. Or then, even as parents, can you imagine the incredible privilege we have to display what God is like to our sons and daughters? Can you imagine how essential it is and how, how soul-satisfying and important it will be for you to grab a son or a daughter, hold them by the shoulders, look them in the face and say, you are my dear child. I am so pleased with you. Now, whatever that would have been like for you or would be like for you, could you take in the good news this morning that that is how Father God looks at you? That right here, today, He would grab you by the shoulders, look you in the eyes and say, You are my dear child. I am so pleased with you. I tell you, I don't know of anything that's harder to believe than that. That's the hardest bit of good news to believe. That that's the way the Father sees you. This one scholar named N.T. Wright, he said it perfectly. Hear this. He said, the whole Christian gospel, the good news, the entire thing, the whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point. That when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day, you are my wonderful son, you make me very glad. Try reading that sentence slowly with your own name at the start and reflect on God saying that to you every day. You want application? Here's what you should do. Every day, you should hear the Father say that to you. Put your name at the front and say that sentence to you. This is the good news of Christianity. Jesus died so that we could be treated like sons. He was baptized identified with us, he became like us so that we might get treated and become like him. There's good news all over this passage. There's one more scene. Let me walk you through it quickly. This is verse 12. 12 says this, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. It's just one verse different, but it's such a drastic difference in scene. If this was a play, it'd be like all the background stage props are removed and quickly a new scene emerges. 
right? You see how fast we go? We go from the beautiful banks of the Jordan River with crowds of people, the voice of the Father, everything is right, you're my beloved son, and now we are in a dry, dusty desert in the wilderness. No one but some wild animals are around. And there, there is no voice of the Father. There is now the hiss of the serpent, of Satan. Jesus is now away from the people by the banks with the Father. He is now in the wilderness with the devil being tempted. He's there for 40 days. It's not exactly what you'd imagine would come next. Right? If you imagine that the Father has just declared His love and His pleasure over this Son, the Spirit has filled Him, this is the Messiah, the one that has come to set up the kingdom of God, you'd imagine that the next verse, verse 12, would say, and then Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Ticker tape parade. Everyone welcomed the Messiah of God. You don't get that. Instead, not by accident, but by the Spirit driving Him, He is led into the wilderness for 40 days, and there he's tempted by Satan. Now, there's much we could say. Here's what I want you to hear. Have you been tempted? Have you ever, I mean, you, you could literally be here right now soaking in the good news that you are a child of God with whom he is pleased. I kid you not, before you make it to the parking lot, before you make it to the parking lot could be the temptation to say what you ought not say, to bark at them, the little ones, in a way you ought not to, to, to carry on that tension you have at home. I mean, you, you might not make it to the end of the day, put your pillow onto, your head onto the pillow before you're overwhelmed by temptation. And if that's you, then I want you to hear this. Jesus knows. Because the one we want to be like became like us so that he might lead us to a place we could never go on our own. He knows. He knows what it's like to hear the Father's approval of you and to go 10 minutes later and to hear the serpent ask, if you are really the Son of God, do this or do that. He knows what that's like. Do you see it now? In every way, he goes through this wilderness so that the one we want to be like could become like us. In this way, I want you to hear, Jesus is not like Superman. You know what I mean? Clark Kent, he puts on the glasses, he looks just like us. But everybody knows underneath that shirt is a cape. It's a big S, and the bullets don't hurt, and he doesn't bleed, and he doesn't feel what we feel. That's not Jesus. Underneath his cloak was a giant S that said, Son of God, but when you cut him, he bled. And when he te was tempted, he suffered. He knows what it's like. In fact, I want you to hear this one verse from Hebrews 2. It says, Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Did you hear that? He had to be made like his brothers. What's that? The one we want to be like, becoming like us. In every respect that we, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18. Hear this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see that? It's not a fitness trainer barking at you what you should do. Because he has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us 
when we are tempted. When we want to go, God, it's so hard to follow you. He wants to say, I know. When we want to go, but God, it would be so much easier to just give in to that. He would say to us, I know. You don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who can sympathize with you in every way because he was tempted just as you are, yet he remained without sin. He has identified with us that he might sympathize with us, that he might lead us with him out to a place we could never go on our own. Do you get that? I, I heard one preacher say, if you wanted to be a representative of a certain city, you have to reside in that city. That makes sense, right? If, you want to if I want to represent Philadelphia, I can't live in California. That would make no sense. You have to reside with the people you want to represent. Jesus is able to represent us because he came among us and became one of us. He became a resident here so that he might represent our interests to God the Father. He is able to help us when we are tempted because he himself was tempted. This is good news. Here's the last thing I want to say. There's good news all over this passage. In fact, if I would, you could take a giant step back and now not just see one picture or another, but would you see both pictures at the same time? He's baptized and he goes into the wilderness. There's good news there. Yeah, picture it like this. Imagine two Jews are reading this for the first time. Imagine a, a Jewish man named Isaac and a Jewish man named Jacob. They're, they're doing a Bible study together. They're reading Mark chapter 1 for the first time. I, I want you to picture the conversation they'd have. I'd imagine that Isaac would go to Jacob and say, Jacob, did you notice something here? Does any of this sound familiar to you, Jacob? And Isaac would go on to say, let's get this straight. You've got the water... And you've got the Spirit of God hovering over the water like a dove. And then you've got this voice that booms out and declares that something is very good. And then shortly after that benediction, you've got the serpent that comes in. Jacob, tell me, does that sound familiar? And I think Isaac would pull out his pocket Torah and he would open to Genesis 1 and he'd say, Listen, do, do you see? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. In fact, some of the Jewish translations later would say it was like a dove over the waters. And then, don't you see the voice of God declaring, this is very good. And just after that, the serpent comes in. And Jacob, we know how this is going to turn out. And you can imagine Jacob going back and saying, Isaac, I see that. But did you notice something? Tell me if this sounds familiar, Isaac. And then Jacob begins to say, here is the chosen one of God. And guess what? He goes through the waters. And then after going through the waters, he's led into the wilderness where he's tested. And guess what number shows up? Forty. He's there for forty. Isaac, does that sound familiar, Jacob would say. And Jacob would pull out his pocket Torah and he'd turn to Exodus. And he'd say, don't you see? The chosen one of God, Israel. The one person to whom God had actually before declared, you are my son in the wilderness. He said that to Israel. And now here's the chosen one, the son of God. He goes through the waters and is led into the wilderness and is there for guess how long? Forty days where he's tested. And he would say, surely we know how this is going to turn out. And can you imagine 
the shock when Isaac and Jacob read for the first time that where Adam had failed in the garden and Israel had failed in the desert and you and I fail in every area of life, Jesus succeeded. The good news that where everyone else had failed, he succeeded. That he might lead us to become what we could have never become on our own. This is the good news, that he perfectly obeyed. And on the cross, he has given that record of perfect obedience to us. He has given that perfect A. He perfectly obeyed God, and he gave that to us. He, who we want to be like, became like us, took on our sin, so that we might become like him. This is the good news. I wonder for you what that might mean today. If you're going through temptation, maybe the word of God comes to you today. As you're in the heat of that battle and says, Jesus is next to you saying, I know. He's not at a distance barking orders about how you should get better or try harder or do more. He's saying, I know. He's able to sympathize with you. And because he suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. If you're here today and you just feel condemned like you can't come anywhere near God, you know your shame, you know your sin, would you see God standing at the shores in baptism line with everyone else? And would you see a God who is right next to you, not far away, not distant, but who has come so close that you could hardly distinguish him from everyone else in this room? Would you worship and be amazed at Jesus? who is willing to be drowned under God's judgment and wrath so that you might be lifted up and receive all of God's mercy? And would you rejoice and worship in Jesus who has succeeded where everyone else has failed and has transferred to you that record of perfect obedience? The good news is that the one we want to be like has become like us so that we might become like him. Let's pray together.